Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lishenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Swarge, and joining us today are Jess Finley, Johanna Hopf-Gardner, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, DQ, and Kendra Brown. I'm your host, Mike Swarge. Hi, everyone. How are we doing? It's been a while. Good. Yeah. This is like traditionally where I'd ask, what have we been up to in the last week? But how long has it actually been since we last recorded? A month? Six weeks? Long enough that I caught up on some sleep? We last recorded uh, right at the end of January, so it's been just over a month. Cool. And how's how's 2021 being? Just before we um, started recording we were talking about the vaccine rollouts is the end in sight do we reckon or is it going to be still be a long long process well i've heard that the south african strain is immune to the vaccine so that should be fine once it spreads the uk strain is fine but the south african one maybe not we'll see i'm quietly confident that i'll be able to be doing fencing again by the middle of the year and maybe the events again by next year. So we'll see how it goes. I like the, yeah, I'm, I'm the hoping for summer. 22 season. Yeah. yeah, I'm targeting the 2022 season for my debut in foil. And I don't know, maybe I'll rest some hero as well. Cool. Is there, do we have projects that we'd like to talk about? Uh, Jess, what have you been up to? Been... Well, Let's see. Um, I am preparing a paper for the Lacushner Compendium that Michael is working on putting together. Um, So I've been kind of, um, I thought it was going to be a short, easy paper that I could write based off of stuff I knew. And then I found stuff I didn't know. And now I'm looking into all sorts of things. So um, that's exciting. (laughs) but also makes it um, not as fast of a paper as I thought it was going to be because, you know, I want to do good work. So that's what I've been up to. Cool. I see that you've also had um, shoulder surgery recently. Yeah. So um, I ended up having um, a stem cell treatment, which is experimental in the United States, Um, but it worked on Hulk Hogan. So I figure, you know, I'm in good company. Um, so it is, uh, they took a whole bunch of fat out of my backside and spun out my own stem cells and mixed it with my plasma and then injected it into my tendon and all of the tears. Um, so it takes about six weeks to see if that works or not. So I'm hopeful. Have you developed superpowers yet? No, disappointingly, but there's still time. Still time. That sounds so scientific. Uh, Joey, what have you been up to? Nothing really. I just thought about it and I haven't fenced since October. And that was only because I managed to go to Switzerland. (laughs) So in Austria, fencing is still uh, not allowed and it won't be allowed for, I don't know, another few months. So I'm on a break. (laughs) Um, Personally, I, I moved to Innsbruck. So I, I'm going to school again. I decided to go to hmm, med school, but not um, to become a doctor, but (laughs) 
um, to, I'm in tr training to become a cold health instructor. So mm. it's, um, we're, we're trained to keep people healthy, uh, teach them to, to move healthily, eat healthily, uh, keep their bodies uh, yeah, healthy. And I really want to do the um, medical massage therapist afterwards. I really love that. Yeah, Ooh. because, yeah, I had some, some really, really horrible, uh, horrible internships at school. And I just found out for myself that I don't want to teach German uh, German uh, until the rest of my life. So I'm looking for something different now. <laughs> and I love, to, to I love it. I love it. Other exciting news. You've got another pony, haven't you? <gasps> yes. <laughs> yeah, we bought another uh pony for a barn he's very very small and very very sweet and he's got a super nice size so he's like uh 140 centimeters in height and i feel comfortable getting wrestled off his back so <laughs> we'll see like horsey humor yes uh michael what giant projects have you been up to oh god you can't see him um, wincing, listeners. The well, so I don't remember when we last recorded if my three two two seven a book had been out yet. That's out in the big color version with scans and the tiny pocket sized version with no scans. Um, I think that might have been out last time, but I don't quite remember. It was in the last month, I think. And then the Lekuchner facsimile project took off, and that's been a fairly roaring success. After initial doubts about how many people would be willing to pay 350 bucks for a facsimile, we've sold close to 200 of those. Whereas the cheaper one that I thought would sell like hotcakes, we've only sold 42. So sort of backwards from what I expected the numbers to look like. And we also did a, a last minute sale of more Getty and Talhofer facsimiles which have sold comparably to the linen. So that is wrapping up in two days, I think. Although they'll still be available after that because I'm going to order extras. So that means that as soon as that wraps up, I'm going to have to spend a week or two editing all the scans, which is going to be a nightmare. But I'm also currently trying to squeeze in work before that starts on the my Fiore book that I've been sort of procrastinating since last fall of actually publishing my Morgan translation and transcription. And that, I think, will be out in April. And then I've started laying groundwork for the big project for the latter half of this year, which is going to be a giant Meyer publication, Joachim Meyer. Um, I've mm -hmm. hired a translator to retranslate Joachim Meyer's 1570 book. And I'm also going to do a new transcription of it. And we're going to crowdfund that starting in, I think, July, maybe. Um, and I'm also going to do a facsimile of the 1570 based on the Leipzig scans, which are the fully painted scans. Um, and we're going to do a facsimile of that to support the translation project because um, it is not cheap. But we'll be releasing various formats of books 
including transcription and translation side by side, just the translation, and the fancy reprint of the original book, which is obviously in German, and probably also an English translation in the same sort of leather covers and same paper and everything laid out like the like the original German book, but with the English translation. So that should be awesome. And it's a much bigger undertaking than any of my projects so far. So hopefully it doesn't completely kill me. And I don't know, always Wichtenauer stuff too. I, that, that project never ends. But I just want to comment real quick on the, uh, the idea to make the book that looks like Meyer's book, but with an English translation. I think that's really cool because it's like, you know, you'll get the experience of actually looking at like maybe what they experienced looking at the uh, original manuscript. And I think that's a cool idea, and I think it should be done for other books as well. Objection. It's not a manuscript. But it, it will not be done in, in typeset infractor, though, I'm pretty sure. Because uh, you want it to be legible. Quitter. Yeah, we might have to stick with something people are happier to read. Comic Sam. Although I do have some really good fractor fonts. Cool. Um, so, so is life now just like Wicked Hour and Hema Bookshelf? Yeah. So I, I've starting last year, I've been trying to make a go of it of actually doing this full time, and seeing if there's enough money in it to survive on. And so far, the answer is maybe. So I guess we'll keep doing that until it goes catastrophically wrong. Um, and then we'll see. But for now, it's been great to clear out a whole bunch of projects that I've had on my mind for years and years that I just never had time for, like the three books I've published so far and the three or four more that are still coming this year. Oh, and also, since Jess mentioned the LeCoutner book, part of the LeCoutner Facsimile Project is going to be another book of um, research papers by various scholars. I have about 10 people lined up to contribute papers Similar to what we did with the Talhofer companion volume. There'll be a LeCoutner companion volume with pictures and lots of research on LeCoutner and Messers and the place of Messer in society. Sweet. And that'll um, be coming out in the May, June timeframe before the Meyer project starts. Awesome. Assuming everybody actually gets their papers to me on time. So July, August. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe more like December. I don't know. We'll see. But I'm hoping for June. This is sounding like Italian tournament organization. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Steve, what have you been up to? Critting Judo by the sounds of it. Huh. Well, that's a question of what I'm going to do after the pandemic, which is still kind of up in the air. But um, so I've decided to. Um, I have my uh, RDL book of the longsword um, RDL, you know, translations, and I've decided to go ahead and do a sequel to that of the um, the pony, or, yeah, the uh, mounted and the armored glosses of RDL. If and it's not maybe... like actually titled Pony and Tin Can, you're a coward. I'm not buying <laughs> it. Not. Oh man. <laughs> Well, we'll see then. We'll see. And then, yeah, so I, I've decided to actually pull the trigger and do that 
I had some reservations before because I don't actually practice those, but it's something that I can do and no one else is doing it, so I'm gonna do it. And aside from that, I'm just planning on what's gonna happen when my club starts meeting again, which hopefully will happen by the summer because we have the vaccines coming and stuff. So planning that stuff out and I'm gonna do make some changes, some of which um, are a result of doing this podcast. So. I'm, I'm, if you're uh, concerned, I'm sure there's tons of tin can and pony fencers out there who'd be happy to receive your translation and validate it, which is, you know, probably the right way to do that. And then it doesn't matter if you do it or that's not. True. Yeah, that's true. Uh, T. What have I even been up to? Um, so I've had some family stuff and so on, um, but I've been still reading a bit more um, and probably the one book I want to shout out from things I've read recently is uh, Ziomart Wojciechowski's uh, This is Fencing. Um, Ziomak is the, or has been the coach of the British uh, modern Olympic fencing team, like at the Olympic level um, for several years. Um, and he wrote a guide to training fencing. Um, it is mixed. Uh, there's some really good stuff in there. Um, the format overall isn't amazing um, and it could use oh. better editing. But it's if you want to just get a whole bunch of stuff from the brains of a really good coach, it's definitely got some valuable bits in it. Probably the coolest thing that I've stolen from it so far on the first read-through is an idea called Tochka, which I'm definitely going to be using in future, which is basically the change in distance just as a fencer is attempting to hit. So like when you when somebody launches their attack as they're going towards their as they're like committed to their opponent, the opponent can adjust the distance. And that last minute adjustment in distance and how you have to compensate for it as an attacker is a really cool concept that I kind of thought about in passing, but hadn't really had a good framework for thinking about. And he talks okay, about so like it in several you've, places. You've committed to making your attack, but yeah, while like that's your happening, your opponent's still changing yeah. things. You, know, you, you pull the trigger and are going. Um, and they like maybe take a little step back that you didn't anticipate or take a little step forward that you didn't anticipate or something. And now you have to adjust what you are doing to deal with where they actually are, which is pretty, it's particularly important in something like foil because it's a thrust only weapon. So if somebody like comes forward and your point isn't over their target, you're going to miss. Um, but it's also pretty relevant in longsword as well. Um, I think a lot of messy fencing you see is people not really having an not really having a model for understanding how their opponent is changing the distance when they're trying to set a distance. Like, person steps forward with an attack, person steps in with a parry, distance has collapsed, and nobody really understands why that's happened. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty cool framework. Um, but overall, maybe not the book for you unless you also fence foil or <laughs> really want to have a completionist library of fencing coaching books. Cool, thanks. Probably uh, super can... relevant. That idea, T, is probably super relevant to uh, Spear as well. Right, because uh, yeah. Lee Schnauer talks about um, stepping back as being a completely reasonable tactic to dealing with thrust incoming from a spear. Yeah, messing with distance in general, and especially last minute messing with distance can really mess up certain types of attack. And having a way to think about it is very valuable. Uh, cool. Kendra, what have you been up to? Uh, I gave a talk on the big discord um, about how to get started in manuscript studies and translation stuff, 
which Ooh. I think a recording will be available to Discord people. I don't know if they'll make it available to the general public. And For reference, uh, it's your recording and you can have it made available to whoever you like is I think the normal deal. Sure. I don't have a YouTube channel, <laughs> so I'm somewhat limited in my ability to do that. Um, I haven't written it yet, but I will try to before this episode gets posted. I'm going to do a blog post that sort of matches it so that people who didn't catch the lecture can just read it. Um, and also my current, like literally today project is trying to figure out ways to visualize patterns of word use within a gloss. Um, I have an example that I will put in the chat so that we can put it in the show notes. Um, I have enough charts to make Steve happy. Uh, there will be so many charts, so <laughs> many charts. Um, but so this little yes. example is just a list of pages in the manuscript. And then I highlighted all of the ones that are Latin translations of German passages that mention Indus to see where they fall. And it's much less evenly distributed than I thought it was going to be. There's only actually yeah. 18 mentions of Indus in the love gloss. Nothing. Uh, or in, in German. In German. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's that right. I'm surprised that there isn't it's, any. It's right the center the of everything, of you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's my stuff. Cool. Thank you. All right, that leaves me. Um, what's her report? So, how'd you turn it go? Yes, a week ago we were going to have our summer tournament. All prepared, guys had flown up from Christchurch for it. And then 11 hours before the tournament was due to start, uh, Auckland went into a level three lockdown. So that was pretty frustrating. Um, I think I'm still at the burnout stage after that. It, and also at the moment, like the weather's turning, we're going into autumn. So basically we're starting fencing season. So between the two of those things, uh, yeah, pretty pretty frustrating. I think that if I do much fencing in the next couple of months, it'll probably be Epo. Just need to recharge the HEMA batteries, you know? Um, the the Christchurch guys are talking about holding an event in the middle of our winter, so that'll be like in July type time. So, yeah, that'll be something to look forward to and train towards. Yeah, sweet. Cool. Um, so... This is normally where we'd ask Joey to read out a section of the <laughs> of the Zettel. We could be really mean and ask Joey to read the entire Zettel. <laughs> I think that's the right way to start this off, yeah. Yeah, you, you got for it, Joey? <laughs> You've got to remind us of what we talked about before, right? Uh, yeah. I, know, I know, I promised it. I know, I know, I remember. Yeah. But it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> About 40 episodes worth do it of content, from memory it? too. Yeah. <laughs> in a dimly lit room. What did she say? We can just record it later and have Steve edit it into the episode. I think that would be great. <laughs> it would be fine. <laughs> I can practice first. <laughs> All right, Steve, if you could. Get out the entire yeah. of Harry's settle. Yeah, just fix it in post. Just fix it in post. Okay. <laughs> that needs to be done now. You're doing it. 
I'm just making more work for him later. Don't worry. Well, I mean, this is All the right, last time right. I'll ever have to do it, so <laughs> I might as well make it a big one. <laughs> Hmm, yes. So, now that we've heard the Zettel in German and Harry's <laughs> translation, <laughs> we've all been reminded about what we're here to learn. Wow. What do we think, guys? Pretty good. I know, I, I think that's the system. It's got some gaps, eh? I think should we yeah. Should we go through uh, viewer questions, listener questions yes. first, or should we... I think listening questions is good. Okay. Listener uh, questions, we'll go with some actual framework, which might be useful, because apparently we need, we need that to talk about anything. Yeah. Except the first listener question. Or the first question. Okay. So Nathan Weston, uh, from a conversation on the Discord, Nathan says, my wild theory is that Absetson is offering an opening to draw a predictive attack and then making a parry riposte. Beeb said, that may not be as wild as you think. I think I like that idea, though, that the difference between absets and inversets is absets and is premeditated. The crimp section does, I think, have the most cases of making itself open. I, I think it's, it's a pretty good point that if there's one thing that I wish that I understood better, it's like the whole what's an absets and what's a versets and what's a vorsets and thing. At the moment, it's just like well, a this, big is, this isn't this isn't a question. This is just something that we we were not this time. Well, we're talking, talking about, about it now. So. Yeah. Good. <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have just to edit all this out and post. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Yep. Yeah. I just thought that was a cool framework that I hadn't really considered before. Like when you ask yourself, what's the difference between objects and infersets? I've definitely noticed that those that the Krumpau, which has strong absets and undertones, and the absets in play are the only places in the gloss where you're told to make yourself open. But it never even it never ever occurred to me that that could be like the core idea of what's going on with absets. And I think it's a cool idea. Um, I would buy it. I don't have any. I don't have any complaints about it. I don't know if it's true or not, but that kind of yeah. might become my head cannon. I think what I like most about it is that it gives a like as an idea is that it it gives you a like a tactical way to understand the difference between these things and then that tactical way is going to play into like the technical bits might well be the same but the you know power you do as an oh shit response and a, a power you do as a deliberate setup the movement itself is kind of similar but the fact that it's an oh shit response versus something you deliberately set up and intentionally invited them into changes the underlying situation a lot. And I think that's actually a worthwhile thing to emphasize when talking about it and teaching it. So it's probably something I'm stealing for the same reason. I still and it's a cool think, Yeah, I still kind of think that Absetzen is is like a subset of Therzetzen. Therzetzen is like a uh, broad term. So it's like that's not even necessarily contradictory to this. Like you can say we have the general category of Versetzen, and then inside that, when it is an intentionally intentionally drawing an opponent into an opening to use Versetzen, we call this Absetzen, right? Like you can a special case of a thing can be worthy of a name by itself um, to draw out the thing yeah, which makes it sure. special. 
Wait, yeah, so I think I think it was a really great um, insight on his part. He shared it with me back in like April, and I was just like, "Yeah, I'm sold. I I buy it." Um, you know, even furthermore because of that idea of as we discussed during Indes, right? That upsets and has the Indes thrust, right? Um, so Indes, your parrier, Indes, whatever, Indes, whatever, we don't know, but <laughs> that you're getting that thrust in there. And we have similar language um, in Krumpau, but it's Indes wine, right? So there's, there's, a, there's a lot of correlation there when that's, when Krumpau is called Upsetzen. Um, Regarding versets and vorsets and all that, I mean, maybe, maybe relevant, I don't know. But, um, you know, in the hunting language, versetsen is to unharbor them, right? To make them move out of their guard, right? Or to move, make an animal move out of its hiding place. But vorsetsen is when you have determined which way you're going to make the animal run, you put your dogs ahead of the animal. Yeah. Right, you set them before, so that relates to this idea of obsetsin, right? That you have pre-planned which way you're going to make them go, and you set your your attack ahead of where they're coming. So, um, you know, there you go. Yeah, I think there's a kind of an underlying difference between how the RDL slash the ZL um, frames control of fencing or initiative in fencing and the way we tend to think of it today. And I think invitation type actions are probably the clearest expression of that, where nowadays it's kind of the intuitive response a lot of people have is that, you know, if you, if you offer an opening and the enemy attacks it and the opponent attacks into it, then that is, you have the initiative because they are taking the opening you offered. And that's true from one perspective, but my gut feeling is that the, and this I think links into why Vor and Naka describe the way they are, and it even can link into things like how Jess has just described Vorsetzen. It's different to lay an ambush on the path that you expect somebody to come down and wait for them to come into it versus chase somebody down a path that you have laid an ambush down, right? Those are, those are two different ways around to solve a problem. Um, and the absets and stuff and the Krimhaus stuff are described more in terms of here's a path that I have an ambush on, and if you walk into it, I will get you with my ambush, instead of necessarily chasing somebody into that ambush. So there's still this like difference but similarity, which I think is quite cool. Um, I think another interesting aspect of this is if I can like anti-gloss this for a second, is that throughout the gloss seems like if our opponent offers us an opening, we're supposed to go for it. Like they want us to try to take it. So it's like, if I'm offering you an opening, then I'm tricking you. But if you offer me an opening, I'm still going to try to beat you by taking it. Which... Yeah. Just be a better fencer. But yeah, it absolutely works in fencing. The, the number of times I see people hanging around in uh, a low a position with their sword like uh, go on try and hit me in the head i'm just like oh for yeah. sure 
Um, and I think that when I, when I see conversations about Vor and Nack and people are going, well, if I invite you to do an attack secretly, I've got a hidden Vor. It's just like, nah, bud. The way I sometimes try to discuss this, sorry, Jess, um, is that if I invite you, then I might have an advantage in, like, if, you, if I invite you and you do the thing I've invited you to do, then my ambush should be ready. And so it should be quick and easy for me to do the thing I need to do. But I'm still, I still have to react with my ambush to the thing you actually did, not the thing I wanted you to do, right? If I give you an opening and you attack somewhere which isn't the place I invited you, I have to adapt to what you're doing. And that's why what I'm doing isn't Vor, despite the fact that if it all goes to plan, you've played into my trap. So you get this, like, it's not... It can feel like it's the same when it all goes perfectly, but as soon as you look at what happens when it goes wrong, you, you realize that the person who offers the opening has to respect what the incoming attack actually is instead of being able to force compliance. Whereas if you're getting somebody to react by attacking them, you force them to do something. I think that there's a general confusion and a wrong idea in the community that good fencing means you're in the four or that being in the four is equivalent to good fencing which is not even i mean it's just a myth they have there, there's not really any relationship there the gloss itself says that you can be in the four or if you're not in the four you can be in the knock and it doesn't assign any moral value to them at all um and in fact most of the plays that are in the gloss are knock plays i mean obviously the best case scenario in any fight is hit the guy and walk away and nothing happens to you, which could technically be considered the four, but that is not hardly any fight. So four and knock are ways of describing how plays are going. They're not ways of saying who's the better fencer or who is fencing better in this exchange. So there's no reason to try and twist the definitions around to describe every possible good fencing move as being in the four. In fact, that sort of inhibits understanding. I definitely agree with most of that. One thing I would slightly <laughs> quibble with is that I think the the ideal doctrinal goal is to have vor to to start the exchange because yeah. like to, to be the person who does the vor side of it. But there's a difference between that being your doctrinal goal, like the thing you are trying to do, your plan A, and that being the same thing as good fencing. I if think... I if I come forward and try to attack someone, that's my plan. But if they swing at me first, I have to respond to that. And that's just playing the game of yeah. fencing. Yeah, I mean, I think you can read the text that way, but I don't think I don't think you're required to read the text that way. I was basically gonna say the same thing, but I was gonna word it like I think the goal is to attempt to be in the four. They or not the goal, but I think and we're getting into the big picture stuff here, which is good. Um I think you know what the you know, in the second general lesson, like, don't parry all the time, try to attack. I think the idea behind that is attempt to be in the four. Obviously, it's not always going to happen. And there's nothing wrong with it if it doesn't happen. But always look to be, you know, look for an attack. Look for an opportunity to attack. Yes? I don't know. Is don't wait for your opponent the same as being in the four? Well, it says don't just, just stand waiting for them. Jess, you were going to say something. Um, yeah, I think I would rephrase it in a less 
vague way. That is, the goal isn't simply to be in the vor. The goal is to make them be in the knock. Right? Because the goal is to make them run, to make them parry. So yeah, while to make we can them behave predictably. Them, I'm sorry, go Mike. Oh, just to make them behave predictably and be responding to what you're doing. Right. Right. And so we we can discuss whether there is such a thing of moving first but not having vor. I don't think so. But you know, that's a point that people get wrapped up in trying to talk about vor because they're not understanding why you're doing that. It it's it's so that you um are the actor by making them react. And if they are not reacting, you aren't acting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My like if I was gonna quickly summarize the sort of the priority order of actions for the gloss, it would be try and try and go first if you can to make them react to you and make them react to you. If they go first instead, react to them. If they go first and you don't react to them, you're being stupid. Right. Like you And so I was I was actually discussing this yesterday and I was thinking about like like Vor plus Indes is beats knock. Knock plus Indes beats Vor, right? But people often think Vor plus Vor beats knock, and it doesn't. That's just you striking twice and you're gonna get hit. If that makes knock any plus, sense. Knock plus indus beats four plus four. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I like these like this least power math. <laughs> oh, this seems four like a good four, point eight, to move eight, on to the next eight, question. Eight, before we end up in a super, super rabbit hole. Okay, so this one comes from Jonathan Paulino, and they ask, what is the panel's preferred way of teaching the material not to a beginner? What, if any, are the parts of the text that are still unclear or really subject to interpretation? After listening to the Binton episodes, I figure there are other sections that might fall into that category. An additional question, I know, well, we'll answer this one first. So how do we teach the material? Uh, let's start with Jess. You're doing a load of teaching, eh? <laughs> yeah. Since you just oh, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no pressure. How Did you go through it in order, or no? I mean, kind of, but no, right? Mm. So, um, since it says not a beginner, we're assuming they have some sort of basic fencing, right? And um, at this point, we're we're dealing with stuff um, that that's uh, that's in the Hopstuga. So I like to create lessons that are highlighting um, ideas back and forth between mm. a strike and a related Hopstuga to try to layer these ideas on top of each other um, and create that self-reference off the bat. So for instance, I would layer a Krumpau lesson with an Obsetzen lesson. And so we would be talking about that invitation. We would be talking about the fact that the Krumpau 
breaks the rule of having your point in presence and why we can do that safely, et cetera, right? Um, and layer it that way. And um, so we, we might then kind of jump back and forth um, between all of those ideas. We might make it footwork centric, right? But I'm gonna be circling around um, a fencing concept and then pulling in the relevant gloss. And for me, in order to keep it grounded, I always ha I have a whiteboard and I always put page references or, or and I put the verse up, right? And so people take pictures of that with their phone and they go home later after they've physically done it and they read it, right? So yeah. that's what I do. I think I'm definitely on board with that in that after when when I'm teaching uh, longsword to somebody who's already fencing, let's put it that way. What I'd do is I would try and make sure that they have an overview of the system. Quite often, I'll meet fencers who who are getting into sort of like the sparring stage, but they're still not quite sure. Like, what should I do in this situation? What should I do in that situation? It's like, okay, this is great. This is where where your five strikes are useful because they give you a a, a way of analysing your opponent and being like, ah, oh, they're in flug, I should do a shield how type. That very, very basic level of problem solving. And then after that, I'll try and create problems. And if the the student isn't working them out on their own or they're they're struggling with something, then introduce the concept to deal with it. So say if if we're talking about uh Vor and Nack, then I'll try and introduce a drill where, you know, there's like a number of attacks until the person attacking is like naturally spent. And then the roles switch so that students are recognizing when the opportunities to attack back develop. I wouldn't say to a student, you know, you just need to sit down and listen to all 39 episodes, all 60 hours of my podcast. We've lost Joey. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. I think the there's a maybe a way to interpret this question. Um, which reminds me of something I presume I, I'm pretty sure I heard this at Jake Nor at a Jake Norwood class like four years ago or something, um, where he was talking about Lichtenauer goggles, right? Like the idea of Lichtenauer not as a, a bunch of fencing moves or a bunch of cool techniques or a bunch of whatever, but as a mindset you use to analyze fencing. And I think this is probably the most, the thing I would emphasize the most in trying to teach somebody who is already a already has fencing experience isn't so much these are the magic Lichtenauer moves uh, but rather this is the way of understanding what this is how to use the Lichtenauer mental model to understand fencing and frame fencing actions and make fencing decisions um, how, as for how to actually do that the way I used to do this when I ran a club was we worked our way through the gloss uh, week by week um, that isn't what I do these days but it worked okay um, the way I do it uh, now, or at least, sorry, go on. 
I was going to say, is that because uh, you were teaching more people from scratch back then, or just you were learning the the material yourself? Uh, a bit of column A, a bit of column B. Um, I think uh, one valuable thing in trying to do it that way is that for a teacher in particular, is that it forces you to be conversant with everything. Um, like I couldn't skip bits of stuff that I wasn't happy with or didn't have an interpretation for. I had to face up to them and try and work out what the fuck it meant. Um, so that was valuable. Um, and I definitely learned a lot by doing it that way, but I don't. Correction, I do still think it's probably the best order, but I don't think the way I was doing it is the best way to do it, if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I have more going. Um, I was just going to say the way I do it now is uh, one-to-one um, because that's the way my club works, or at least it does when we can fence. Um, and so generally what happens is I will have a conversation with the particular student in question about the thing they are trying to, either the idea they're trying to learn or the problem they're trying to solve or the whatever they're trying to do. And then we will do some fencing in which I will give them fencing situations related to that idea or that problem or that whatever um, that are reasonably similar to each other but slightly varied and they can try out different solutions that fit what I think good solutions are. Um, often I will try and not explain the solutions until they've already emitted them. So like we might talk about like what are the you're you're trying to solve this fencing problem, right? Um, what are the characteristics of that problem? You know, what what are the things that makes that that make that move really effective against you? Um, and then we'll just do it a bunch at like slightly different speeds and variations. And then we might talk about like, okay, you were managing to fix it in these ones. What's the common feature of those? So those are the times when you change the distance or you, you know, uh, did more parrying or to wait for your opening or you went in straight away and whatever. But it's also complicated for me at the moment because I'm teaching people who have very mixed fencing backgrounds and don't necessarily want to learn looking at our doctrine because they might normally train at a Vadi club or something. I just want to comment. Um, so pre-COVID, my class structure was basically, as far as teaching the source goes, is go through the source in order in its entirety. You know, one one piece a time in one class and we had one class a week and i'm going to change that model and the reason why is because i feel it's like with with one class a week i feel it becomes too disjointed you have like you know each week you have a separate thing and even though it is in order you like there's a week in between so like you recover you maybe aren't thinking about what you did last week anymore or and definitely you're definitely not thinking about what you did like a month ago and there's no way to like bring it all together in a cohesive way so i think i want to you know i'm gonna change that model and probably do something that's kind of like a combination of what all of you have said it'd be like a goal-based thing and um you know bring together different parts of the gloss that reference each other or talk about each other or whatever. Yeah. The model I'm like 
I'm vaguely making plans towards running an actual club again at some point, uh, probably not soonish. But the model I'm starting to play with is a instead of like a sort of a linear, whatever, um, the idea of like a spider teaching or learning as a spider web, where you have a series of spokes that are like the core things, and teaching repeated repetitively works its way through all of those, um, and then each time you come back to a spoke, you're integrating new stuff or just reiterating old stuff or whatever. But the idea being that you're there's a relatively limited number of spokes. They're all introduced very early on, um, probably in the beginner's course, whatever that becomes. Um, and later teaching is very much based on like extrapolating on these ideas and adding new, adding new stuff to them, but teaching by reiterating um, instead of by like, here's all of one thing, done. Yeah. Here's all of the next thing um, type framework. I've got um, uh, the next question ready, unless anybody has anything else to add. Jess, I what do. were you saying? I do. I want to say real quick that um, the exception to my not teaching in order would be if somebody comes for a weekend seminar and they want to understand um, the whole of it, hmm. and then I do teach it in order. But like in one day, we'll slam through all five strikes, right? Because that's an experienced person coming to understand a greater thing. So in that case, I wouldn't mix stuff up. I would be like, here's the verse, here's the place, here's the verse, here's the place, here's the verse, here's the place, right? And then we would slam through because of that condensed and one-on-one -on -one nature allows for that kind of learning. Um, as Tino's, you know, he came and he came and did a yeah. different thing, but we did kind of slam through some of it, right? Yeah, we only um, did like half of it. <laughs> But yeah. Yeah. Well, you wanted to do armor, so so we did. Yeah, exactly. Um, but um, but I think the other thing I wanted to say about that, the order is important for memorization. The order is not important for execution. So it is a book. It is not a physical pedagogy. And so once you have it in your mind, one of the things that the book does is create, I think of it as like hyperlinks, right? But there are hyperlinks in the verse. When the re verse repeats itself, you should be jumping around to those other places. So for instance, if you're going through in order um, and you're in the Zornhau chapter and you get to the three wounders stuck in there in the Krieg and you didn't do all of the Zornhau plays executing all three wounders, are you truly doing it in order? Did you truly do the whole thing? I would argue no, right? Um, so there's actually a lot more to dig into even in the gloss than when people think they're doing it in order, right? Often they'll get to that say, thing and say, oh, well, there's three wounders. Okay, let's keep going, because I want to do duplier. You're not supposed yep. to keep going, right? You're supposed to blow that up and create you know, the web, right? So anyways, that's my last thought on that. Uh, yeah, and just in terms of it as a text with a structure, the, the structure is almost cyclical, isn't it? 
Yeah, the, that was one nice thing about doing it. Like just working your way through the whole thing is that you kind of naturally come back to the beginning, which makes obviously restarting really easy. All right. After that textual question, Jonathan also had a, a context question, or a, how it was practiced back in the day, um, which is. At what distance does the panel think these techniques, or the majority of the techniques posed in the glosses, are supposed to be done at? Anyone going to bite? Depends. It depends. End of. That's my final answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I'll give a more, broad, broad I'll give a more satisfying answer. At, uh, sort of like what intensity. Um, what are the expectations for when specifically, let's say, the the exposed, the unarmored longsword is meant to be practiced at? Yeah. Um, I think the the simple answer is we don't know. Because we don't really know what kind of fencing they did. And you know, it, like the time period where the when our source was written. You know about like some textualist stuff and you know other stuff and we can see yeah. the kinds of things that they write about like stabbing people in the face but we still don't have a perfect answer for exactly how this stuff would be used Does anybody ever want to pick pick it pick uh, it up from here uh, I, I will think, say something dumb i think for me people developed this and to have developed it, they must have been doing fencing often enough to come up with a system. If you're not practicing a thing, doing a thing often enough, then people don't systematize it. It's like um, the the example that always come back to is the the standard judo Brazilian jiu-jitsu armbar where the hips are behind the elbow joint and you slowly crank it on on the ground to the best of my knowledge that was never invented in the west and there's no reason why not you know like the body bodies are the same everywhere right then why wasn't that technique developed there, there are different arm bars that we see and the answer is because judo or jujitsu or whatever had enough praxis of ground wrestling to submission for it to be developed as a as a concept as an idea and all of these fencing ideas were developed so they must have been practiced enough we have the previous like 400 years well let's say 350 years where we've got one fencing source of systematized sword fighting but people going out and sword fighting all the time. We've got accounts from, you know, the 1200s or whatever. And then only after the Black Death do we, like, see an explosion in fencing sources. My theory would be because people were becoming more literate with a little bit more leisure time because Black Death, blah, blah, blah. But any, anyway, so, so what I'm getting at is that my theory is that people were fencing for funsies but without masks. And if you're doing it without masks, without armor, and people were 
used to get injured all the time um, in different periods. We have that evidence. But anyway, so there would have to be constraints on the kind of fencing that they were doing for fun. And we can look at like modern places where people do say in Africa, you can look at African stick fighting and these people are going ham, but they're not wearing masks. But there's very much like a I go, you go. Um, there's very much like a an agreement to walk into distance. They're not just, you know, doing what you might expect from, say, Chinese staff art. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of one thing which I did a a survey, and I guess I'll turn it into an article when I get around to publishing some more articles. Um, but I did a short survey through the through the glosses and nearly every time there's a few different words used for language like stabbing and so on but in particular something on it which is which becomes quite obvious is that almost every time the face is called out as a target for a thrust it's either thrust towards the face or it's thrust the face or chest um and like so one of them is more a kind of could be read more as an implication of direction but not necessarily hitting and especially when you get plant, like the verb and sets where you, you're putting the point on a mm. thing, um, it almost exclusively, potentially completely exclusively, I'd need to go reread my notes, um, mm. gives a choice of targets. Like, so you're never... Exclusively. Mm -hmm. Completely exclusively. exclusively. Yeah. Oh, Steve's actually done research. Look at that nerd. Um, we talked about this when we talked about Anzetsen. Yeah, there we go. Um, so the, that by itself suggests that one, people are probably fencing at something resembling contact distance, but that there are potentially, like, you could super easily see how you would say, okay, this is a game, I'm going to put my sword on your chest, versus I want to kill you, I'm going to put my sword on your face. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing, which is maybe a bit more wild, um, but comes from a conversation I had with Martin Campuis some years ago. Um, Martin is half of the core team for ProGauntlet. Um, really fun guy, uh, knows an awful lot about sword dynamics. Um, and something he mentioned is that the handling of some of the original fetters that he has, kind of, a, a sword has like a point of balance and stuff, um, but it also has some other properties to it, like rotational nodes and vibrational nodes and so on. And the rotational node in particular, um, generally for a long sword, if you're holding the weapon, if you're holding a long sword with your hand pretty much up by the cross guard, there's a rotational node that's pretty much on the point of the sword. Um, and that means that like you turn your blade and the point stays in place really nicely and you all sorts of cool stuff with it. And with, there aren't that many original fetters, but with the ones he's measured, there isn't a rotational node there. Instead, it's like a few inches in the tip of the sword. Um, and one of the results of that is that if you're holding this thing, and you like you close your eyes and you feel where the point will feel like it's a few inches forward of where it actually is. And so if you like do a do an action with it to touch with the point of the fetter, it will it feels a lot in terms of how your sword is moving in your hand and behaving in your hand, like an action which will put the point of your sword several inches inside the person. So maybe there's a you can potentially if you want a, a nice wild theory, argue that the way they designed their fetters was intended to 
give you some of the feeling of hitting while still being a couple inches short to just making surface contact, yep. which is a pretty cool little quirk. I think the other thing that's worth saying is that generally in this show, I've been pushing back against the idea that KDF is a killing art for splitting people in twain. But there's nothing preventing you taking what you've learned in a sport and applying that on the streets. Yeah. Um, what is an earnest fight is an interesting question. And clearly, it seems pretty obvious that earnest fights would be restricted in their own way in various ways by law or social requirements of honor or whatever. But it's also definitely true that swords were used as weapons. And people who are learning sword fighting from a professional fencing master might well be expecting to use their sword as a weapon as well as for showing off down the factual. I mean, it's important. It's important oh, to know fencing gets grouped with wrestling as an exercise, right? Yeah. Like we don't have to take a wild guess as to whether or not they did this for play. Like not only does Lee Schenauer say it, but literally every list of a game or every list of exercise puts fencing in there. Yeah. It's something to keep you in shape. Then maybe you might possibly use something from it. If I, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. There's a but mostly from, it'll keep you in shape and it's fun. There's a quote from Nadi, which I think is interesting here, where he so Aldo Nadi was a very famous uh, early 20th century uh, fencer and fencing master. Um, he won Olympic gold medals in all three weapons uh, in the same Olympics um, uh, in 1920, and also fought a duel. Um, and he says that despite the fact that everybody who doesn't fence thinks like fencing and dueling are the same thing, they're totally different. And apart from some technical overlap, they're completely different worlds, um, which is a really interesting little characterization. I paraphrase, but we can put the full quote in the show notes. Um, but like fencing as a game and dueling for keeps aren't the same, despite the fact that you might be using the same moves and ideas for them. But also, the more you might need to use those same ideas, the more it might be to take some risks in training and maybe go faster than we'd necessarily go or use less gear than we'd necessarily use. Mm. There's a fun parallel to that. I read a book on crossbow guilds recently, and crossbow guilds in the Low Countries, and archery guilds for that matter, almost always had a legal immunity. Their members had a legal immunity to deaths caused in practice. <laughs> like, if a dude gets shot with a crossbow and dies at a, at a practice or a competition, Nobody's at fault, and nobody can get in trouble for it. Um, and the reason for this, where, in their, yeah, I was just going to say, where is the office of health and safety? <laughs> yeah, but the, the but the the cool thing about this is the reason for this is explicit, right? And the reason for this is that the 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 value to the town's defense and honor of having good archers and crossbowmen is worth occasionally having people die in practice. This is it, this was a valuable enough skill for the town to have and to have a really good archery guild that the town would accept the fact that stuff would go wrong occasionally and would like the town would pay for their damages and stuff when when that shit happened. Um, and obviously nowadays, if you have a rifle club and your rifle club rules say yeah, like 
if a dude gets shot, nobody's in trouble and the city will pay their family like a pension. Your rifle club's gonna get shut down. But mm. it's a different it's a different world. Does that have right. anything to do with the fact that all the pictures we have of archery guilds have people like standing downrange next to the targets? So the, the, <laughs> the main place you'd have an archery competition in like 14th and 15th century Flanders is in the main market square in the middle of town for three months. All right, I, I've got um, a story that I probably should not publish when this podcast goes live. But you guys, um, after we finish recording, ask me about the rocket challenge. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, just All to right. jump in quick before we move on, um, very small tangent. You mentioned that it seems like the fencing manuals crop up after the Black Death. Um, something I'd never thought about before listening to video lectures the entire pandemic um, was that the Black Death disrupted all of the oral traditions everywhere it hit. Um, so in the specific talk I heard that mentioned this was about um, the Black Death in Africa, where there weren't write, written traditions and all of the like craft traditions there that were passed down from a master to apprentice just stop in the middle 1300s and never come back. So that we're... The, the idea that the fencing manuals turn up in the wake of that could have something to do with oral traditions being disrupted and people going, oh no, we need to not lose things next time this happens. Cool. That's really interesting. Thanks, Kendra. I've got nothing to add. All right. So, uh, John T. Hi, John. Asks, what, if any, interpretation on the lines changed since the start of the podcast? Have our interpretations changed since the start? Um, and I think this is going to be, if not just, oh, Mike's discovered that he's been full of shit for 10 years. But instead, uh, have our interpretations on things changed since we recorded it for the podcast? Yes. Exact one. In my exact mind, examples. I don't remember how because we've been doing this for a year. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I can think of any specific examples right now, but definitely it has changed. I'm still don't think I understand the Zorn how. Same. Some, so, like, one which definitely sticks in my mind because it's super recent would be Nathan Weston's Framing of Obsession, which I only found out about since the start of this podcast, and I think is probably correct. So there you go. That's a new thing. Um, but undoubtedly, um, and I would need to go back through the podcast to really have a good version of what. But I also think that if you can't point to an interpretation of yours, which has changed in the last year of your thing, you're probably not challenging your ideas enough. Um, um, I just thought of a couple examples. Tukin, I changed. I changed from the uh, sewing machine to the up and down. And I tweaked my Tsverhau uh, over the summer. Yeah. Because the Tsverhau doesn't work wasn't a satisfying answer for me. So. <laughs> I think it's Fair. pretty cool. 
Yeah, I haven't right. really done enough fencing since the start of the podcast. Yeah, I have a whole many lot. major fencing opinions. But Nathan White says Western's framing about sets and certainly fits for me. Eric D asks, "What did we learn or notice about KDF during the making of this series, which surprised us?" For me, I think I learned KDF as a system that is, if you're being attacked, then you do a single time counter attack into that which will be one of your five master strikes and buddy that is not what the book says yeah <laughs> it's parry repost it's compound attacks it's um it's faint it yeah when you get into the specifics of the plays then it's it's very difficult to justify sweeping statements like that i also thought that was more grappling than there actually is hands up on that one i think um a lot of the stories that jess has told have been interesting um like the like the falcon ideas and you know cool stuff like that um, the grammar of the word indes, I found to be fun and surprising. Um, You're a special man, Steve. <laughs> there was a, yeah, the um, Breckfenster learning that it's not the uh, the Hobbit window or the, uh, you know, speakeasy window, but a nunnery window. <laughs> the Hobbit window. And, yeah, probably other stuff that I can't think of off the top of my head. One thing I learned, which I wasn't necessarily, or which I can think of at least, uh, maybe I should have done some revision about what we actually covered in this podcast, um, was uh, actually something I noticed while doing the um, uh, thrusting summary, which is that the different Hauptstücke describe openings in different ways, but relatively consistently. So some of them talk about go from one opening to another or go to the opening on the other side or something. And other ones talk about named openings like the face or chest. But there are very few which talk about both, which I think is a nice little piece of evidence, potentially some sort of like amalgamation of ideas in the process of composition, um, where you had uh, like a source of, you had like some stuff which was described in one way and some stuff the other way, and that kind of got mashed together in the process of compiling it into a thing. But it's a fun little, a fun little point. I I find out that um, I used to teach longsword the way I was taught, and I I read the sources, but I interpreted them in a way I wanted them to interpret the interpret them, and I I know I read it, but I didn't realize that there were different like angles to to look at the sources or or different ways to read them. I just I just had my my idea, like the idea I was taught and the idea the people around me had, and I didn't I didn't think about it. And right now I I realized that everything I <laughs> no I realized that I understand the sources way less than I thought I would understand them. <laughs> um, yeah, but the problem is that I didn't have the time so far to to try all the new things I learned but I'm really looking forward to it. 
yeah. So, in summary, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I overestimated. <laughs> I overestimated my understanding of the sources. Yeah, oh, I've had it recently <laughs> where like people are asking me fencing questions. I'm just like, buddy, I don't know. You just do you. Just swing a sword. Do work out what works. And it's like. I don't know. It's like a Dunning Kruger thing where I'm now at the point where I know nothing about fencing. Yes. Like a year ago I had very strong opinions on on like every technique and and every idea. And right now I, I, I realize that well all we have is a maybe. Maybe it was that way, maybe it was a different yeah. kind of way, so yeah. Um <laughs> Alright, uh, well, okay, some questions from Anthony Klon. Um, kind of similar to a previous question, should we teach beginners the basics of fencing first, based on instructor experience and lessons learned from other traditions, or should the emphasis be on getting them to learn historical techniques in the manuals first? I have strong opinions on this, but Jess should go first, because she is normally quieter. Jess, talk! <laughs> I, w I would say yes they should learn the basics and framing the basics as being unhistorical is not helpful bingo the way i teach a beginner these days is like i give them a sword and i have them swing it a couple of times um uh, just in the air and then i'm like yeah that's good that's how to do a cut um pretty much regardless of what they're doing um if they're swinging the sword that's good enough for now um, then I put on a mask and have them hit me. Uh, then I start walking around and have them hit me when they think they can hit me and try to like walk around themselves and get good times to hit me. Then I take a sword and I block them if they hit me at a bad time, and then we kind of go from there. Um, and this stuff is pretty much the general lesson, um, or it rapidly becomes the general lesson. We'll talk about ideas like, okay, if you keep your left side back, you can step to do a cut, and I'll show them that by doing it at them and hitting them with it and then get them to start thinking about doing that idea. Um, or we'll talk about like, okay, you can like swing your sword and then as I go to parry it, you can hit me on the hand. And again, I'll show them by doing that. And then they start to do the same thing pretty much by imitation. Um, and this stuff is all the early stuff out of the manuscript pretty directly, but it's not presented as, let me show you a technique that you will learn to reproduce as the first step. Rather, it's let me let's play with swords, and I will give you problems that encourage you to try and in the way line up with the early techniques. Um, yeah, I, I think with our modern fencing game, people come to the club to play with swords. I don't think I've ever had anyone come up to me and be like, "Hey, Mike, can you uh, can you teach me lines thirty six to forty on Lichtenhauer's longsword?" I have actually. Uh, yeah. One guy turns up at my club and asks questions like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, I've had questions out of club time being like, can you explain this bit? I tried reading it, I don't understand it. But I think it's if you're not using instructor experience to lead fencing basics, then why do you have an instructor? Like, why bother going to the guy with 20 years worth of coaching experience when you could just read the book and maybe look at youtube 
Um, I think that if, if you're designing a format, then of course you should um, you should be bringing in instructor experience. When it comes to lessons learned from other traditions, I think it's super important to highlight when you're using frog DNA. Otherwise, you get students that think that the center line is important in Lishenhaus. Which it might be, but it isn't explicitly. Something I specifically would say is that there's more basics in Lichtenauer than is maybe necessarily obvious if you read it really carefully. And it's it generally feels safer to me to think about copying. If you need something, the, the stuff which I really try to make sure is 100% Lichtenauer from the very beginning is thinking stuff, like how how somebody is understanding what's happening. Um, so the the very first thing that they're doing is like trying to hit me, trying to come up and hit me. And that's like VOR 101. And then if I try and hit them instead, they parry, and that's not quite. And then we start to like build from there. So the, the stuff which I really get picky about trying to make sure is coming across straight away is that kind of decision making. And if the decision making framework is licked an hour, the techniques themselves will kind of converge towards licked an hour, is my an underlying view of mine. Yeah. Is the, 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 as long as you're making, you're thinking about fencing this way, you're going to like naturally try and solve problems in this way. And I, then I think you'll I get think the techniques themselves later. Mike, you go first. I was going to say that you only create problems to solve the game that you're playing if you're playing boher then you're not going to invent uh unarmored longsword fencing if you're playing dog brothers then you're not going to invent playing with sharp longswords fencing so for me like wait the the most important job of uh, an instructor a coach is to create games that reward the right kind of of behavior. Yeah. I would like to pose a tangential yet related question, I feel, which is, do you think it's possible to fence in a KDF slash RDL slash Leash an Hour or whatever way without actually using any of the set piece plays? So say you just take all the set piece plays from Fiore and you do them, at, but do it in like a KDF way and still be fencing KDF. Well, I, I have an answer to that. What, depends what you mean by a set piece play. So like, is a parry a set piece play? I'd say no. Because there's no specific thing that says if he attacks, then parry him. End of story. Mm. I guess that, yeah, so, you could. Have, oh, go, go to you. Go, you go. No, no, you go. I was going to say, well, I guess that you can have um, something like parry for the arm grapples that aren't in Lichtenhauer, right? But sure, if right. you're if you're setting up that parry by thinking about Vor and Nack and thinking about um, invitations so that you can abset in their blade, then you're still still a KDFer. Yeah, my my answer would basically be yes. I really think you can. Um, I think you can teach a 
perfectly good lift an hour class and i might try and do it at an event sometime when events are legal again because i think it could be kind of fun um where every single play is directly from fiore and the way in which the plays and the decision making are described and related to each other is the kdf decision making framework and i think if you teach somebody like that they will solve problems in a kdf style and the reverse of this is that I think if you teach somebody all the KDF set pieces, but you describe everything in terms of tempo, and you teach them to make decisions based on like parry repost versus single time counter and stuff, they will not fence KDF. They will fence some modern fencing system with KDF moves on the top of it, right? Like the moves are the paint job, but they're not just the paint job because they're also the way you express these system mm. like the, the decision making framework but just having the moves won't necessarily make you make your decisions in a particular way i think this is actually the reason a lot of tournament fencing doesn't necessarily look like what people might think of as kdf is because it might have the kdf moves but it doesn't necessarily have the kdf like magic goggles all right uh that nicely brings us into our next question which uh, I'm sure more people have opinions on. Um, and this again comes from Anthony Klon. I'm curious about something else. Are the techniques, especially hanging and winding, for example, too exaggerated in our modern practice? It seems at first glance at the speed of sparring that they aren't used, but taking a closer look, experienced fences are moving their swords to close openings and moving the point to hit an opening. So are windings and hangings much more subtle in practice than we typically think about? At one extreme, could these windings and hangings be analogous to what's going on with rapier? So basically, how much of techniques like Vinden and Hangen actually happen in modern sparring and competition? Yeah, um, I say yes, they do, and yes, they're more subtle. So like, a lot of times if I'm trying to set somebody aside, instead of going like this and stabbing, it'll just be this and stabbing. Just setting aside enough to get them out of the way. So maybe it doesn't look like a, you know, a perfect winding or blade taking that you might expect from the book. I still think it has the same spirit and is the same, pretty much the same thing. And also binds a obviously they happen swords touch each other um but they're a lot faster than you might expect when first reading through the book um and things do happen but they're not bind and then the thing happens it's bind and then the thing and then it's already over before you can even think about it so i think one one thing that i have tried to um do throughout the series is always ask um when we talk about a technique always ask if anybody has pulled it off inspiring with resistance okay. and you know answers vary through like some some techniques are more common than others obviously but for the most part except for like hand pressing i think everybody said no most of the plays we've seen used so that's my answer um jess have you got an opinion on this 
Mm. Nah. Uh, Michael Chidester, haven't heard from you in a while. I don't really have an opinion on this. <laughs> this is a fencing question, not a book question. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I, I, no, I, no one wants to hear me complain about fencing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've got strong opinions, but that's more me complaining about the HEMA community, not. I guess, I guess, I could, I would comment that there's a whole lot of implicit definitions wrapped up in that question that I don't really know how to tackle. That you have to establish your definitions of what you think Lichtenauer is teaching before you could even start to say whether this thing in sparring is the same as this thing in the book or not. Mm. And I don't know if I even have an answer to a lot of those questions, but ultimately, how many moves, how many specific physical actions are in Lichtenauer? I think it's a smaller set than people tend to expect, given how many separate plays there are. But I think they start to boil down to a fairly small movement set. So if you're doing those movements, are you doing the, the set plays that use those movements, or are you just moving? I don't know the answer to that either. But even the example offered of if you're moving your sword from one side to the other, is that the same thing as winding? Fuck if I know. I mean, it could be the same as winding, but what even is winding? We spent two hours on that. I'm not yeah. sure we arrived at a satisfactory answer. So it's possible that's winding, but it's also possible that you can move your sword without winding. Um, I think that that kind of question is one that you that I ask less the more I study these books because there's a certain there's a thing called what's specifically on the page and there's a thing called what we teach when we try to teach fencing and there's a thing called the parts of what we learned that we learned well enough that we can do them under pressure and also another fourth section would be what our opponent is giving us opportunities to do and those things rarely all four line up in a straight line I mean, in my perfect world, they always would, and that would be cool, because then what's in the book would, it would instantly translate into fencing. But I think there's so many sort of conversion factors you have to go through to get from the beginning to the end of that chain that just that the question becomes sort of too simple for me to answer, mm. except to say I don't know. I... Okay, so it turns out I do have an opinion. But... <laughs> <laughs> So it's kind of interrelated with with the last question, but I think it's relevant here. Um, one thing we haven't talked a lot about and that I think a lot about um, is the unanswerable question of style. That is, Shotokan Karate and Kung Fu both have high blocks. They both assume, throw, uh, oh, there was my F-bomb, sorry. Throw, um, you know, Western boxing. You get one per show. I know, and it's always me. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, you can do you can do Western boxing, Shotokan karate, and kung fu, and they all have a way to deal with an attack coming in that is a quote unquote high block, right? And they all have a right and a wrong answer, and none of them look at all alike, and. So when we say and when we ask questions like, is a movement in Tybalt winding? Yes and no, right? 
that that will that problem will be solved in a similar manner, but because it's a different weapon, a different system, and a different style of movement, then no, it isn't, right? And so we don't know, we can't answer, um, was Li Shenauer's longsword more kung fu or more karate? We don't know that answer. Um, and so we have created HEMA, right? Which to me looks a lot like boxing often, that that's what we've brought in, boxing or fencing, which makes sense. That's our, our discussion of, of movement. Um, but, you know, when we're thinking about context, when we're thinking about and we're saying these guys played, play is always a social engagement that is about storytelling amongst friends. Um, and so, you know, this is, you know, why I agree with Michael and, and why he got me really uh, thinking through why, why I thought I didn't have an opinion is because I can't, I can't know. And that's very frustrating to me. Right. Um, so that's my long winded response to that. Sorry. I think I've come to HEMA, the modern practice of it, with a very like pro competitiveness, pro just get out there and smash peeps um, attitude. And mm -hmm. I've constantly seen criticism of tournament fencing being like, look at these people, they're not doing real Lichtenhauer. So my answer to the question would be that like we could take the sportiest of sports long sword like me fencing Rowan Skillbeck, uh both of us basically doing epee with long swords. And you could break that down and you can analyze it in terms of like Nachhausen and Vinden and um that kind of stuff. You can apply the the sources there and you can say actually also both these people are studying sources they are they are working from it but you're also absolutely right that that modern practice is different to whatever people were doing in the the 15th century or the 14th century uh, not 14th they definitely weren't in the 14th um 16th century um because the social context is different and the the material culture is different and the the expectations are different um and yeah we don't have it's, dances uh, after we fence and we know they did yeah. right and if we did have dances after we fence our dancing style would not be their dancing style right like there is a language of movement that is missing from this so, conversation so, i mean to me to guess to me a more interesting question is what are the fencers thinking when they're doing those techniques and do they realize that they're winding are they thinking about winding? Maybe not in that moment, but when they practiced that move, were they thinking about winding? The move they just did instinctively in that moment? Or were they practicing Fabris Rapier when they learned that? I mean, those are the questions that we can answer, maybe, or we can have more certainty about, rather than, he just did a thing that kind of looks like a picture I saw once, therefore he's fencing historically, um, even though he was doing Filipino martial arts in his head. Like there's that; those are the questions that are maybe related, but 
maybe drive at what the uh, what the person who asked the question was was wondering. Um, and I'd say, like, if you're making an earnest attempt to fence what you think is like the tower, then there's probably a lot of ways that can manifest. And it's not necessarily going to look the way I look when I'm trying to fence Lichtenauer. So there's a lot of movements that show up in sparring among people who studied Lichtenauer that look that that that, that could be versions of these set plays that are incomplete or are shortened or they've made them really tight and so it looks different. Um, but there's also a lot of things that look exactly like Lichtenauer that aren't Lichtenauer. I think yeah. Lichtenauer is what's in your heart at the end of the day. Mm. Exactly. <laughs> when, when I when I. Um, Go ahead, Steve. Steve. Uh, when, when I first um, went to answer my question, the uh, I guess the, the what what popped in my head that I wanted to answer is like is our idea of what these techniques should be um, doable or like practicable or you know practiced already in our modern fencing game. And the answer to that question, I would say, is yes. Um, however. Our modern fencing game also informs what our ideas of what those things are. So there's a little bit of, you know, a circularness to that. I think one point I'd like to make is that we're very few of us really, I think, have the kind of HEMA dream of or the stated HEMA objective of recreating a dead martial art. People want to go out and they want to win medals at Swordfish, or they want to play with swords, or whatever. And if your objective is to get good at playing the modern sword fencing game, then there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking this bit from Moth, taking this bit from Fiore, taking this bit from Lischenhauer, because we are modern people in a modern day age doing modern hobbies. And so long as you're just honest about that, then yeah, doing a hybrid martial arts, no props. I mean, to you know, John Middleton, who, if he's challenged on a source, just goes, oh yeah, I just see long sword according to George Silver with a bit of Fiore. <laughs> because it's an unchallengeable position. But yeah, as long as you're honest. Yeah, I think the, like, when it comes to questions like this, there's a lot of, on the one hand, people are often too focused, what's, what's the, the way to put this? I think people are often too focused on the physical form of the actions when they're trying to evaluate this and not focused enough on the underlying thoughts and decision-making process of the fencers. If you're understanding fencing in a particular way and you're trying to act in a way, then what you're doing is probably that thing, even if it looks different to what I would do because I'm a different height to you, um, I've got a different build to you, like the distance in our match is different and all this stuff. The the way a technique will manifest varies every time it's done um, and always will because every single fencing situation is different. Um, but the exact, the underlying decision process might well be the same. Um, and that's the thing which probably really matters. On the specific subject of hangings and windings, um, uh, Magic Talaga's video uh, from Sparecaster blog, which will be linked in the show notes, is I think a really, really interesting alternative, alternative take on them uh, that is very consistent with particularly the 327A gloss which he studies, and 
very practical in a kind of an act in a modern fencing game context, um, while still being very source based. So having a watch through that and thinking about it can be a nice way to expand your mind about what you might be seeing in a fencing situation. So I'd recommend having a look at that for the person who asked this question. Okay. Uh, and I guess the related thing, actually, I'm just going to run for a moment longer, mm -hmm. is that they could totally be analogous to what Rapier, but the underlying decision-making framework is different. Um, mm -hmm. uh, if you're fencing with a long, long sword and you're doing like windings from a point-forward guard, you're going to do something that looks basically the same as Rapier. That shouldn't be a surprise, but you're probably thinking about it differently if you're thinking like an hour, as opposed to if you're just doing two-handed Fabrice. Fabrice okay. not being French. Okay, um, right over. Cool. Uh, Hallucigenia Host, probably not their real name, asks, what are your thoughts on what kind of tactical game someone might want to play if they're fencing in Alba? I've got opinions on this, but Panel, go first. T, you had your hand up. Me, me. I taught, I taught, I do classes on this one. Um, uh, do the extra plays for the fencing from the sweeps. It all works from Albert, and it is all framed in the tactical structure of Lichtenauer. Um, the first and most important question is, are they attacking you or are they not attacking you? If they're attacking you, you parry by striking up. If they're not attacking you, you hit them, because that's your, your basic Lichtenauer choice. Then if they are attacking you, you parry, and then you work according to hard and soft on the sword. Um, it's all in there. Um, the, that little section of stuff is pretty much complete. Um, it's a great great little system. Just use that. Yeah. I would add recognize wow. you're already short, right? Mm. I, I yeah. would add that recognize you're playing short because you're low. And so then look for techniques that you can use that are good for um, being short versus being long, right? AKA maximize your strength, et cetera. Yep. I'd say um, the glosses themselves give a pretty good, I mean, it's not, it's kind of uh, all over the place in the gloss, but there's you know a lot of places where they talk about low guards. So I think the plan, I mean, my, my main plan if I'm in a low guard is to kind of harass them into committing to a strike that they don't want to do. So I'm not just going to stand there passively in Albert and, you know, wait for them to come. I'm going to be approaching and kind of going after this, you know, their, their right arm or whatever and threatening a stab trying to get them to commit to something that they don't want to, so then I can, uh, you know, in the spirit of obsets and carry that and then do whatever I want, which I think is what the uh, fencing from this gets at. Then there's a stuff Pretty about... Much. Yeah. Then there's a stuff about if they fall on your sword, and if they fall crooked, then you can, like, disengage and stab, and, you know, all that stuff's good. So yeah. that's my plan for when I. Time. This is actually one of my like backup games in a turn. If I'm fencing someone I can't beat the other way, I switch to this and often it works. Um, but my kind of core tactical loop is to harass them with like rising parries and like little hand snipey type stuff and so on. And get them yeah. frustrated with trying to come at me so that they try to follow my sword and then stab them in the chest. Um, 
when they do it. And if they don't respond to uh, any or, of that stuff, you can just stab them. Yeah. Um, uh, but there's a there's a particular like moment where somebody changes their focus to intend to fall on your sword, and the moment you see that, you stab them in the chest. Um, uh, it works surprisingly well, uh, even against really good fencers. And yeah, is a great little a great little thing. It comes straight for being. It comes straight from the fencing sweep stuff. Right, Mike. I was interrupting you. Lost my train of So. I think this gets back to like our Scheitelhauer discussion. And for years and years and years, people were going, the Scheitelhauer doesn't work because when somebody's an Elba and they stab at you and you try and Scheitelhauer them, it's a double. I turn that on its head and say, if you're going for a direct attack with a thrust from Elba, as far as I'm aware, that's never in the Lichtenhauer early edition have a glosses and it gets you hit in the head so don't do it there <laughs> um. yeah, are the times when i'll go for the i kind of go for the when you see somebody has changed focus to try and follow your sword then then you can do the direct attack with or i guess it's an indirect attack since it involves a disengage um uh, because in that moment, like, if somebody's committed to not moving at you, then you can stab yeah. them. While they're free to do whatever they want, you can't stab them. You have to respect their threat. It's like that is the gloss. That's in the gloss. That's in the shield hat. So there's your thrust from Albert. You're told if he falls on your sword, then change through and stab him. Exactly. And then we have As stuff where attack, if they successfully... Then if they if they successfully fall upon our sword, we have the Abschneiden. All right. And if so, none of that is enough context, then you go look at the harness fecta in, in the plays from <laughs> right? Third? You look at the plays from the third, third guard. guard, and there we are. All right. Alas, yes, we're never off. gonna know what's meant by press the sweeps and what technique is being used there and so on in the Shailha. This last question is kind of like a hybrid from Roman Krapov's. Actually, no, two separate questions. Roman Krapov from Auckland Sword and Shield, shout out to the ass. I'd love a question to the panel regarding what avenues of research they'd like the wider community to take up. There's always more research yourself, um, but what would you like to see the hemisphere at large um, take up the slack on? What questions that they like to see debate, etc. So basically, what would we like HEMA to do? Minister? Buy me facsimiles. Buy my no. Um, <laughs> well, I research is a funny word to use for what we think the HEMA community should do, since research is pretty heavy for anyone who's just interested in fighting with sword. Actually, I mean, I know that when people say research, they mean read one chapter of a book, maybe. Um, but actual research is pretty hard and complicated and requires like going to libraries and stuff. Uh, but I think that in terms of ways that we could progress the HEMA community and we could improve our fencing by the book uh, might be to Take the put less attention on the five strikes and put less attention on 
those crutches that we started using in Lichtenauer Longsword 20 years ago and never got away from and started looking at the rest of the book. I would love to see people who could actually, I mean, people who were really good at using long point, not because they're sports fencers or rapierists, but because they're good at using long point. That'd be pretty cool. Um, people who actually learned the plays from the last third of the of the gloss that no one ever reads and could use them effectively. I know, like, well, what even is optionizing? Um, so that, that would be like just getting people to t take a look at the book with fresh eyes and don't get distracted by the stuff they already know, which is a really tall order. It's hard to do. I can't do it that well. Um, but I think there's a whole lot of stuff that's still sitting here in these books that we already have translations of that we just don't pay enough attention to. So I don't know. Pick some stuff out of the gloss that you've never practiced or never used in a tournament and try to get really good at it. And then pick some more stuff and try to get really good at it. <laughs> I, I'd say to add on, I, I agree fully with everything that Michael just said. And I would say to add on to that, um, start simple in order to be able to actually follow through. So, you know, if you want to start translating, for example, don't seek out, you know, some crazy obscure source that no one's ever translated. Start with like the gloss. Start with something that we already have a translation of, and the glosses are like relatively, you know, extremely easy to translate compared to, say, like Meyer or like Hans Madel or you know, those things. So start simple. I can't tell you. Go ahead. Sorry, Steve. I, I can't tell you how many time, how much time I've spent just going and looking, and being like, "What the heck?" and looking at one sentence and looking at it in German and trying to figure out how this translator got this expression out of this German. Like that only requires a dictionary and a little bit of time. Anyone can do that if they're really, really concerned. And it might be a gateway drug that you get hooked on, and then you decide to actually learn German. Like, I I'm not good at languages. And I sat down with uh, DX transcription of Liv, somebody else's translation of Liv, online dictionaries in the Discord, and tried to understand the original text. Like, and by process, but you learn an awful lot of interesting things. And then, and then once you've done that, if you want to, I mean, maybe that's that's all you want to do, which is totally fine. But if you want to, then the next source that you'll look at, you'll have a much easier time with. And then, you know, eventually you can be, yeah, you'll get there. But it's a, I guess my, my main point is, yeah, I guess my main point is um, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So start simple and work your way up. But I know several people who are teachers in, the, in our community who are quite capable of doing a translation if they actually sat down and put in the work. And they don't care about that, but they learned how to do the language part because they wanted to know what the book said. Mm -hmm. I mean, freaking Jake Norwood can read German pretty well. He says he can't translate, but he can look at the book and he can tell you what that sentence says and he can disagree with the translation that's published. And if that's the level of skill you want, you don't have to go into it with the intent that I'm going to produce something that's book worthy and I'm going to publish it. Like that is not the entry level of translation. The entry level of translation work is 
I have this one paragraph that I'm puzzled about and I want to figure out what it says for myself. And it never has to progress beyond that. You can get really good at that piece and be happy with your ability to study. Actually going from there to publishing a book like Steve's done is several more levels beyond beginner. So don't right. start with that intention because you're probably not able to follow through on it if that's your first goal. And I think it also it also is worth emphasizing that just because something has a translation doesn't mean it's not worth understanding the original or trying to do a translation yourself. It's always worth having more than one opinion on you know what something means or being able to you know understand the original. But that's a much nicer way of putting what I was going to say, which is do not trust published translations. Um, not not just because occasionally people make dumb mistakes, but also because they they bake in their own interpretation. And um, we can think of trans, which yeah, which you're going to, but you, we can think of translations that um, have baked in like a very martial, um, real deadly longsword understanding of the text. Which, when you then go back and look at it, is maybe not there. Like, it's definitely, and just to forestall, I guess, the thing which is constantly going to be said, um, it is impossible to translate without interpretation. Um, there's no such thing as the unbiased, unambiguous, just translate what the text says translation. Um, so, every published translation has an interpretation built into it, and every personal translation has an interpretation built into it and you can't get around it. So you have to, at some point, it's really useful to have enough ability to follow what's going on to be able to understand what the interpretation of the translator was, even if you agree with it, and perhaps especially. Um, I guess going back to the original question, the thing I think would be really cool to see a, a big upswell of in the wider KDF, RDL, whatever community is not like textual perfection isn't the right word for it, but like a a critical reexamination of what stuff is in your or your club, your personal or your club's interpretation and understanding of KDF, where that comes from and whether it comes from the books and if it doesn't, where it actually comes from. Like there's a whole load of ideas that float around time in the HEMA world that are either not true or dubiously Not true, true about the sources or extrapolated or interpolated or stuff like Zornhau is a 45 degree cut like right that's an idea that loads of clubs have and isn't actually anywhere in RDL so have a th doing the process of going back through the stuff you think is true working out mm -hmm. whether it is or where you think you got it from and whether you think it's worth holding on to is a really valuable process to do periodically. Doing the work of going through everything as opposed to just the bits you find comfortable and easy and high percentage is worthwhile. Um, for coaches, uh, the other one I'd point at is emphasize. I'd love to see more clubs which prioritize teaching people to think over teaching people to do uh reproduce plays um and i think you'd see better play reproduction from people who think 
uh, most of the time. But that's a personal bugbear. Um, but uh, more clubs and more people who understand what stuff they have is frog DNA with crazy basis or and even if you have something which is frog DNA, you can keep it. You don't have to throw it away. But it's really good to know what it actually is, as opposed to just believing it's a thing that the book says. Um, because you don't realize that the guy who taught it to you had got it from somewhere else and forgot that he'd read it in a different book. Had like whatever. You gotta sequence that yeah, DNA. You need to know what it actually is. Um, and on on the flip side of that, if you're an instructor be clear about what is frog DNA that you're teaching. Try to be clear and what's from the book. Yeah. That doesn't mean you have to spend like ages in the middle of class going like, okay, this is the bit from and here's what it says, and this is the bit I took this other thing, but just mention like, okay, this is my extrapolation. Okay. I like I learned this from a rapier book and it seems to fit. So we're gonna practice it this way. You know, little things like that are really useful. I mean, yeah. I mean you're clear. The the book's not quite clear here, but this is what I think the answer is. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, I, I and unless unless you're German, don't invent German terms, and especially <laughs> not <laughs> say that they're from the book. Yes. Yes. Um, a third one I'd say actually, which just is maybe slightly more general, is read supporting history books. Um, like there is a whole load of public mental consciousness about what medieval the medieval world was like that we all have in our cultural knowledge and a huge amount of it is total bullshit um i think we're 18 rated now sorry everyone um yeah. uh, but just like also be, books. be specific books when you're talking about history, history as well yeah like it's one thing we we had a conversation the other day about um, how manuscripts were used and whether they would be kind of like read communally out loud. And I was just like, absolutely, reading out loud was normal in the ninth century. I have absolutely no idea about whether it was normal in the fourteen seventies, say. Yeah. Um, and that's. Um, like assuming that uh, what would that be that would be 500 years let's say that'd be like assuming that i read the same way as shakespeare did so that'd be yeah, the yeah. time difference exactly um but yeah read like go actually read some stuff about history read stuff which is as specific as you can find it um to the sort of mm -hmm. late Rene late medieval early renaissance germany or if you study a different email source whatever the appropriate context is, but try and try and get a picture for what was actually going on, what was actually like instead of what comes through in pop culture, because what comes through in pop culture is often total garbage. Um, I've got some some answers just quickly, which are a little bit different. Would I like to see the hemisphere take up the slack on? I'd like to see something like Wichtenhauer but for later sources. Um, for, for Rapier, for Sabre, um, something where the sources are easily accessible. Um, I'm working on it, man. I'm only one guy. <laughs> I know, I know. And, uh, or um, more seriously, that, that is something that Wichtenauer will get to, and if I had helpers hmm. who could work on that for me, then it would get there sooner. But I would love Wichtenauer to cover that. Yeah. All right, go on. Um, 
but I, I I constantly find frustrations with trying to talk to rapier people, and they're like, oh yes, but in this book, okay, how do I get a hold of that book? Um, <laughs> I'd like to see the the hemisphere drop four side judges, Swedish semaphore judging. That would make my life better. <laughs> Probably not what this podcast should be about. Um, Sorry, I'd say like, that again. I didn't, I didn't catch part of that. Uh, I'd like Hema to drop Swedish semaphore judging, where you've got the four guys yeah. on the sides with the flags. Um, come on, guys. It's 2021. Um, I'd like to see a little bit more more research on like the early 1500s i need to read more about it but it just seems like such an interesting time period with um at the moment there's crazy awesome stuff going on but well at the moment there's like some people are doing italian stuff which is like marozzo and bolognese some people are doing like kdf and there's this time period when they're contemporary and all kinds of craziness going on in the Low Countries, and I think that would be an area which would be ripe for study. Yeah, I would like to see um, a lot more experimentation with, um, just to kind of circle back around, but experimentation with different physical movement styles right and it might end up being trash but if you want to really push research um and you're a random hema person see what you can do to push the artistry of your movement in a different way and so even if you do look to the previous previous example of like kung fu but you know whatever look to what are what are people in South America doing? What are like there is some amazing machete fighters in the Caribbean that having a living tradition, they fence with machetes, right? What does their movement pattern of their body look like? And then see what happens when you do Lishenauer with, you know, African machete movement as your basis of movement through space. And, you know, it might tell you some really cool things. Um, but that's, you know, beyond what any one person can do. That's, that's research. Lots of people need to be jumping out and doing, you know, apply ballet to Lishenauer, see what happens. Right. Um, I think that would be amazing and requires a lot of physical diligence and effort, um, that, um, like I said, it's just beyond one person doing the work. So that's what I would then, love to see. Yeah, pushing the boundary of something in mind is rubbish. Go ahead, I was just agreeing with Jess, basically. No. I was yeah. going to say that I've often joked that the very best thing that HEMA can do is get nerds into physical fitness because that actually improves people's lives. And right. I'd love to see HEMA outside of the competitive circuit scene take physical culture more front and center of what we do. Um, Shout out on that uh, subject to 
Charles Lin and co who've done like historical nightly physical fitness style stuff um, uh, a few times yeah. where they like try to do the sort of exercises that they talk about in like things like Talhofer and so on, like throwing rocks and doing lots of jumping. Um, do you know which what is the, really cool. the hemisphere like, needs? It needs more Charles Lin. <laughs> yeah, 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 like 20 more of that guy would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, seems like Great. an absolute treasure. Never met him, but he's doing some real interesting stuff and having some really interesting conversations as well. But I think the thing I point to about like why Charles does so much cool, coming back a bit to what Jess was saying as well, is that he has an idea, tries it out, and finds out if it's rational by trying it out. He doesn't only do stuff that he knows is going to work or only optimize stuff that he's already got kind of working. Um, he keeps on, and this is what's like why he's come out with so much cool stuff. And it's probably the most useful thing you can do is re-examine what your ideas are. Come up with some also, crazy new idea, put it to the test, yeah. decide it was rubbish, and do that every six months, and you'll he, come up he, with eventually. He has this ongoing series on his um, his Facebook timeline where he'll post a uh, an update that says "shitty idea number whatever," and it's always like a really cool idea. So, but also in science, you need negative results, right? You need to test things, have it not work out, and to be open and publish that. Otherwise, people just repeat your mistakes. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think humorists need to be more open and communicative about like, yeah, so I went and I tried to do this thing and big fat fail. Right. And I would even reframe that as he must need to be more brave. Because it takes a lot of bravery to be like, I did this thing. It was utter trash. I'm doing a trash thing right now, right? Um, It's completely not working and I hate it, but I'm going to see it through to the end and then I'm going to publish an article about how much I hate it. Not a trash can, not a trash cannot. Yeah. Uh, All right. One last question from Doug to wrap up. What's next for the panel? It sounded like some members were considering another podcast after this. Are there any big and exciting things on the horizon for any of you? I guess I'll go quickly because I am actually podcast. Um, it probably won't be soon. I have a couple of other things I want to wrap up and some personal slash family life stuff, which gets in the way of doing a big project right now. Um, but I'm looking at doing a Hema Book Club podcast. Um, the idea will be either two or three strands um, uh, coaching books and like modern coaching and pedagogy as one pillar and historical history books and uh, translations of contextual books from the time period um, as the other pillar um, rotating panel uh, like panel discussion about a different book every episode kind of podcast so that might come towards the end of this year and I will start a Facebook or Discord or something for people to who are interested to get in the book lists and volunteer to be on the panels. Uh, so if you're interested in that, hit me up eventually. That is my kind of project announcement. Cool. Jess, what have you got on the horizon? Uh, my big focus right now is getting out um, from that. Von Baumann's Ringen or Wallerstein, 
um, however you want to think about that. That's going to be a two-volume set. Um, one, which is I transcribed the darn thing and translated it. Um, and then this, the companion book to that will be interpretive. Um, so that's that's going to suck my year for sure because um, it's gigantic. Um, as you guys know, it's like 93 wrestling techniques. Um, and for the uh, interpretive, I think it'll be in the interpretive volume, but it might go in the in the translation. Um, I'm doing the work of uh, what I used to call the the great ring and concordance of doom, um, which was to correlate these things. Where do they show up in all of the books? Um, and then referencing the manuals. So it's gigantic. Um, but hopefully we'll get a lot more people wrestling. So that's what I'm after. Ooh. Awesome. Chilister, uh, more books? Oh, God, just so many books. Uh, I mentioned Fiore comes out next month, I hope. Um, in June, July, I've been talking to Christian Trusclair, and we want to put out our vision to the Lichtenauer Compendium. Um, he's working on his transcription, his translations, the last of them right now. This will be all of the glosses that we know about. So Ringek, Danzig, Lev, Nikolaus, Hunt, Madel, 3227A, and the fragments in Hunt von Speyer and Dresden um, compiled together into one big, long, giant book. Um, and ideally, that'll be out this summer. And then in the fall, we'll be working on Meyer stuff. And I'm... Um... Oh, Angela Kuchner's thing is going on, too. Uh, is that all of them? I'm also more long-term working on getting a translation of Padre de Del Pozo's 1470s dueling treatise that'll be published whenever I get around to actually translating all of it. Um, so that might not be till next year. I thought that was going to go way faster than it has. Um, isn't that the story of translation? And then I'm also going to contribute something to a freelance Academy Press book that I don't know what's even do yet, but that might be this year or next year, related to the Blumetus Kampf's German treatises that are parallel to Fiore. <laughs> and that's my life right now, that in Wichtenauer. Uh, Kendra. Uh, I'm hoping to someday ever release a Latin love translation mm -hmm. for everyone else to read too. Um, and after that, Somebody keeps nagging me that it's time to revise the Florius translation now that I have an actual good dictionary. I'm still kind of traumatized from the last <laughs> time, which took two years and has taken at least five years to get over. So I don't know about that. And other than that, I have a non-fencing translation project I might do that's um, biographies of women that was written in 1497 and some of the women were like alive and still active at the time so getting an actual contemporary view of what their reputation was and not just the weird like three lenses of history version that we usually get cool by somebody there she meant me uh by the way we might do another version of the like the Fiori mm. compilation as well if we can get all the translations together. Steve, what's on the horizon for you? 
There's going to be a new edition of my uh, RDL longsword book, which will, I want to get a chart of the uh, Lion Ringek Wild Fairy uh, shoehorned in there. And I would like to get uh, the Rascal Gloss also uh, included in that and a bunch of updates to the translation which most of which have been a result of doing this podcast. And additionally, like I mentioned at the beginning, I have started working on the sequel to that, which is the uh, Tin Can and Pony. So mm -hmm. those, uh, the, the versions don't line up as cleanly as they do for the longsword. So it's a bit of a uh, larger project. Um, so maybe maybe 2021, maybe by the end of 2021, it might almost be done. But I don't know. I don't really have any timelines, but I'm working on it, and it'll be out eventually. I can tell you from experience, people get kind of pissed off if you release a revision of a book very but soon after it comes out. I got a lot of <laughs> well, complaints about my 3227A translation. Well, it's been a year now. That's not... Uh, Has it been a year? It has, yeah. Whoa. Well, almost. I, I mean, I released my book uh, June of last year, so by the time oh. I'm ready to release the uh, revision, it'll have been a year, probably. That's fair. Yeah, 2020 happened, and now it's 2021 at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've lost Joey. Uh, she had to disappear because it's late in her time zone and life. Um, but hopefully we can insert what she's going to be up to next at this point. Sorry, Steve, we'll work for you. As for me, what's on the horizon? Uh, I'm planning on sleeping forever. And I've signed up to teach an advanced longsword course that I need to do some serious thought about soon. Um, competitively, maybe in three, four months' time, there might be something going on down South Island. Maybe six months' time, I might be able to get over to Australia. But at the moment, I'm feeling pretty burnt out on HEMA. So, yeah, take it easy. Any last words before we sign off? I guess the only thing I really plugged was the, the upcoming podcast project, but I'm also working on a kind of a stable of new event clubs on some quite different models to some of my previous ones, but I think they're pretty cool. So if you run an event, when events are illegal again, and travel is legal again, and I don't know if fencing is legal again. Uh, hit me up and let's see what we can do. That's my other shout-out. Cool. Uh, any last words to sign off? Read the manual? I yeah. I got Read the a... Uh, <laughs> I was drinking beer once, and it was one of those beers that has a little, uh, you know, a little message under the bottle cap. And the message on the bottle cap was, when in a bind, use your mind. And that really spoke to me. There we go. Back on going forwards. When in a bind, use your mind. Thank you for listening. This has been, has been Fencing by the Book. I've been your host, Mike Swarge. And joining us have been, have been our panel of Jess Finley, Michael Chidester, Stephen Cheney, TQ, Kendra Brown, and Johanna Hopfgardner. Thank you for listening.
Das ist die Vorrede. Junkre der Lehre, Gott lieb haben Frauen ja Ehre, so wächst dein Ehre. Über Ritterschaft und leere Kunst, die dich zieret und in Kriegen zu Ehren hoffiert. Ringens gut Fässer, Gläfen, Speer, Schwert und Messer, mandelich bederben und den anderen Händen verderben. Haut rein und hört da, Rausch hin, Triff oder Lafan. Das sind die weißen Hassen, die man sich preisen. Darauf dich fasse. Alle Kunst haben Läng und Masse. Gemeine Leer. Willst du Kunst schauen, sich link und recht mit hauen und link mit rechten, dass du stark gärest fechten. Wer nachgeht hauen, der darf sich Kunst wenig freuen. Hau nein, was du willst, kein Wechsler kommt an dein Schild. Zu Kopf, zu Leib, zecknet vermeid. Mit ganzem Leib Ficht wirst du stark gärest treiben. Hör, was da schlecht ist. Ficht nicht oben link, so du recht bist. Ob du link bist, im rechten Aug sehr hinkest. Vor und nach, die zwei Ding, sind aller Kunst dein Urspring. Schwäch und Stärk, indes das Wort damit merk. So magst du lernen, mit Kunst arbeiten und wehren. Da schrickst du gern. Kein Fechten nimmer gelernt. Fünf Haue. Fünf Heulere. Von der rechten Hand wer der wäre, dem wir geloben, in Kunst gern zu lohnen. Zornheu, Krump, Twer, hat Schiller mit Scheitler, Alba versetzt, Nachreißen, Überlauf, Haus setzt. Durchwechsel, Zuck, Durchlauf, Abschneid, Händedruck. Häng, Wind mit Blößen, Schlach, Fach, Streich, Stich mit Stößen. Zornhau. Wer der Oberhaut, Zornhau Ort dem traut. Wird er es gewahr, so nimm oben ab, eine Fahr. Bis stärker wieder, Wind, Stich, sich das, so nimm es nieder. Das eben merk, Hau, Stich, Leger, weich oder härt. Indes und fahr nach, anhurt, dein Krieg seinet gach. Was der Krieg rämt oben, nieden wird er beschämt. In allen Winden, Hau, Stich, Schnitt, Leere finden. Auch sollst du nicht prüfen, Hausstich oder Schnitt. In allen Treffen, den Meistern, willst du sie effen. Vier Blößen Vier Blößen wisse, Reme, so schlägst du gewisse, in alle Fahr, an Zweifel, wie Gebar. Willst du dich rächen, die vier Blöß künstlich brechen, oben du blier, nieden recht mutier, ich sag dir für wahr, sich schützt kein Mann, eine Fahr. Hast du vernommen, zur Schlag mag er klein kommen. Krumphau Krump auf, behende, wirf den Ort auf die Hände. Krump, wer wohl setzet, mit Schritten viel Heuletzet. Hau Krump zu den Flächen, den Meistern willst du sie schwächen. Wenn es klitzt oben, so stand ab, das will ich loben. Krump mit Kurzhau, durchwechsel damit schau. Krump, wer dich irret? Der Edelkrieg ihn verwirret, dass er für wahr nicht weiß, wo er sei, eine Fahr. Twerhau. Twer benimmt, was vom Tag her kommt. Twer mit der Stärk, dein Arbeit damit Schreck. Twer zu dem Pflug, zu dem Ochsen hart gefüg. Was sich wohl twert mit springendem Hauptgefähr. Fehler. 
Fehler verführet, von unten nach Wunsch erröret. Verkehrer. Verkehrer zwinget, den Ellbogen gewiss nimm, spring ihm in die Waag. Fehler. Fehler zwiefach trifft man den Schnitt mit Mach. Zwiefach ist für Bass, schreit den Link und bis nicht lass. Schielhau. Schiller ein bricht, was Büffel schlecht oder sticht. Wer wechseltraut, Schiller daraus ihn beraubt. Schill kürzt er dich an, durchwechsel gesieg ihm an. Schill zu dem Ort, nimm den Hals, eine Forcht. Schill zu dem Obern, Haupthänd willst du bedöbern. Scheitelhau. Der Scheitler dem Antlitz des Gefahr, mit seiner Kehr der Brust fast gefähr. Was von ihm kommt, die Kron das abnimmt. Schneid durch die Kron, so brichst du sie hart schon. Die Striche druck, mit Schnitten sie abzuck. Vierleger. Vierleger allein, davon halt und fleuchte gemein. Ochs pflurg alba, vom Tag sei dir nicht unmehr. Vier versetzen. Vier sind versetzen, die die Leger auch sehr letzen. Vor Versetzen hüt dich, geschieht es auch sehr müdstig. Ob dir versetzt ist und wie das da kommen ist, hör, was ich dir rate, reiß ab, hau schnell mit Trate. Ansetzen. Setz an vier Enden, bleib darauf, leere, willst du enden. Nachreißen. Nachreißen leere, zwiefach oder schneid in die Wehre. Zwei äußere Minne. Der Arbeit danach beginne und prüf die Gefährt, ob sie sind weich oder hart. Fühlen Das Fühlen lehre, indes das Wort schneidet Serre. Nachreißen Nachreißen zwiefach, trifft man den alten Schnitt mit Mach. Überlaufen Wer unten rempt, überlauf den, der wird beschämt. Wenn es klitzt oben, so stärkt das gleich loben. Dein Arbeit mache oder Härtedruck zwiefache. Absetzen. Lehre absetzen, heu stich künstlich letzen. Wer auf dich sticht, dein Ohr trifft und seinen bricht. Von beiden Seiten triff allemal, will du schreiten. Durchwechseln. Durchwechsel Leere von beiden Seiten Stich mit Serre. Wer auf dich bindet, Durchwechsel in Schier findet. Zucken. Tritt nahe in den Bünden, das Zucken gibt gute Fünde. Zuck trifft der Zuck mehr. Arbeit der Finde, das tut ihm weh. Zuck allen Treffen, den Meistern willst du sie effen. Durchlaufen. Durchlauf lass hangen, mit dem Knopf greif willst du rangen. Wer gegen dir stärk, durchläuf, damit merk. Abschneiden Schneid ab die Härten, von unten in beiden Gefährten. Vier sind der Schnitt, zwen unten, zwen oben mit. Dein Schnitt wende, zu Flächen druck die Hände. Die untern hängen. Zwei hängen werden, aus einer Hand von der Erden, in allem Gefährt, 
Hausstich, Leger, Weich oder Herd. Sprechfenster. Sprechfenster mache, stand freilich bis sich sein Sache. Schlach ihn, dass er schnabe. Was sich für dir zieht, abbe. Ich sag dir für wahr, sich schützt kein Mann eine Fahr. Hast du vernommen, zu Schlag mag er klein kommen. Die Ausrichtung der vier Hängen. Unter acht Winden. Wer wohl furet und recht bricht und endlich gar bericht und bricht besunder, jeglich sie drei Wunder. Wer recht wohl hänget und Winden damit bringet und Winden acht mit rechten Wegen betracht. Und zu ihr eine, der Winden selbst dritt ich meine, so sind ihr zwanzig und vier, zählt sie einzig, von beiden Seiten. Acht Winden leere mit Schreiten und prüftige Pferd nicht mehr nur weich oder härt. The Prologue Young Knight learn onward, for God have love for ladies' honor. Till your honor is earned, practice chivalry and learn. Let the art grace you wholly, and in war bring you glory. Wrestle well, grappler, lance, spear, sword, and dagger. Wield them, be brazen, in others' hands raise them. Strike in and close fast, rush to meet or let it pass. Earn the envy of the wise, win boundless praise before your eyes. Therefore here behold the way, every art is measured, weighed. A general teaching of the long sword. To have the art within your sight, set left forth and cut with right. For left with right is the strongest way to fight. He who waits for cuts and follows, in this art finds naught but sorrow. A nearing cut is good to do, your shield to stop him changing through. To head and body do assay, from flesh wounds shine out away. With your whole body you shall fight, for that is how you fence with might. A simple rule to understand, fence not from left if right of hand. If with your left is how you fight, you'll fence much weaker on the right. For and nach to these two things, the whole art owes its origins. Weak and strong, the word indes, remember hereon. You can learn, then, with skill to work and defend. If you easily fright, you won't ever learn to fight. The verse. Zornhau Krump Zwer has Sheila with Scheidler. While the fool will parry, chase, flow over, cut and harry. Pull and disengage, pass through, press hands, slice away. Hang and turn to the openings below and above. Strike and catch, sweep and thrust with a shove. Learn the five strikes to the guard from the right. And this we can promise, your art will be glorious. The Zornhau. Who cuts from above in any way? The Zornhau's point keeps him at bay. If he wards and fends it off, be fearless, take it off above. Turn and thrust if he holds strong so. If he sees that off, take it down below. Now remember this part. Cuts and thrusts come soft or hard. The for, the nach, and the indes. Don't rush to engage. But do as I say. Those who go high in the bind, shame below is all they'll find. Howsoever you will wind, cut, thrust, slice you seek to find. Further, you should learn to choose which one is best serving you. 
Then whatever way you've bound, many masters you'll confound. The Fear Blissum Four openings know to truly guide your blow, without fear or doubt, for what he'll bring about. Breaking the Four Openings Redeem yourself by taking four openings by their breakings. To above you redouble, mutate low without trouble. Now let me assure, no defense is for sure. And if this is well known, barely he'll come to blows. The Krumpau Throw up Krump and don't be slow. Onto the hands the point you throw. Many cuts are plainly wrecked, with a crump and with good steps. Cut the crump into the flat, and vex the master's well with that. If the blades should clash up high, step off and be praised by eye. Crump not, rather cut it short, if the changing through is sought. Make the crump to who'll distress you, to confuse them, bind and press him. To give a man no way to know, where there is solace from your blows. The Tzfehau. Whatever blow from high he make, the cut named Tzfeh will soundly take. Cut a Tzfeh with the strong, and be sure to work on. To the Pflug drive a Tzfeh, from the ox hard there. Make a spring and Tzfeh well, and his head is in peril. Avoid and mislead, and strike low where you please. The inverter equips you to pass through and grips too. Take the elbow to bring him off balance and spring. Void it twice. If you touch, make a slice. Double fold and on it goes. Step in left and don't be slow. The Shielhau. The Shielha will break. Cuts and thrusts peasants make. The Shieler endangers who threatens the changer. Shield those short before you. Defeat them, change through. To the point the shield goes, Take the neck boldly so, drive the shieler high instead, threaten them, his hands and head. The Scheitel Howl The Scheitler cut can condemn the face, but when it turns it will set on the chest with great threat. What the Scheitler brings forth, the crown drives it off, so slice through the crown and you break it well down. Push the sweeping attacks with a slice and pull back. The four lega. Lay in four guards, and the rest disregard. Ox, Flug, and Alba too. The Fomtag will not be unknown to you. The four Fezetzen. The Fezetzen are four. They leave lega well sore. Of the parrying beware. You should not be caught there. If parrying befalls you, as it can happen to do, Hear now what I say, wrench off, cut away. Set upon to four endings, keep it there and you'll end him. Nachreisen. Learn to chase after twice and through the guard a slice. The ways to lead out are double, from there you work and struggle, and determine what he seeks, no more than hard or weak. Learn the feeling, read what it says, and the word that cuts deepest is indes. Chasing goes two ways, learn it twice. If it touches, make a good old slice. Ubelaufen. Whoever aims to take it below, by flowing over their folly show. 
When it clashes up high, remain strong and be praised by I. See your work be done, or press doubly hard upon. Obzetsen. The setting off, learn to do, cuts and thrusts, ruined afore you. Whoever makes a thrust at you, your point meets and breaks his through. From right and from left, always meet him if you step. Deutschwechseln. Learn to change through, cruelly thrust on both sides, too. All of those who seek the bind, changing through will surely find. Zuken. Step close into the bind, pull, and what you seek you'll find. Pull, and if he meets, pull more. Work and find what makes him sore. Pull whenever you are bound, and any master you'll confound. Deutschlaufen. Pass through, hang it to the floor. By the pommel, bring grips for sure. For those who keep strong against you, do remember the passing through. Slicing off. When it's firm, slice away. From below, you'll slice both ways. And the slice is number four, two below, above two more. Hände drücken. Turn your edge just like that. Press your hands to the flat. Hangin. Here are two ways to hang. From the ground, from your hand. In every attack, whether cut or a thrust, the hard and soft lies within you can trust. Sprechfenster. Stand in Sprechfenster to see who will enter. Whoever draws back, strike in with a snap. Now let me assure, no defense is for sure. And if this is well known, barely he'll come to blows. The conclusion of the title. If you lead well and counter right, and finally it's in your sight, if you divide things as they are into three wounders, each apart, hang the point in true and fair, turn your sword then well from there, and eight turns there are, if you rightly regard, and each turn of the blade into three can be made, twenty-four can be named, though they're one and the same. On both sides this concerns, learn to step with eight turns. Rate the bind, I implore, soft or hard and nothing more.